Welcome to uh, another episode of the second best AAPI uh, creator <laughs> podcast, according to Good Housekeeping. Uh, number two, folks. Sorry. Number two, and uh, I got I got uh, the usual. I got the the usual. I got Adam. Adam, how's it going? Hello. Uh, I got my girlfriend Shan with me. Shan. Hello, everybody. Hello, and a special guest for today, a uh, friend of the pod, friend in real life, but someone who's been really quite busy and, uh, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, Ron Kim, state assemblyman, I don't know if life has been passing you by or whether you are uh, feeling like, you know, you're living in the middle of a novel or something, but I, I mostly just keep up with you through the news now or when you appear on The View, to, <laughs> to things like that. Um, but it's been a while. So, Ron Kim, welcome back to the pod, man. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Teen. I appreciate it. I have been under a lot of stress, uh, especially during COVID, but I always have time for the greatest Asian American podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes I'll check randomly, and then you're just like, oh, yeah, I busted both my knees doing, uh, I don't know what, what kind of like backflips you were trying to do on a, on, for your daughters or whatever. But I'm like, you got way more energy than me. And then I, I, I was just talking to Shan today. I was like, I, I don't know how Ron has the energy to do this, you know, <laughs> like to to go through life like this. But um, one governor later, uh, we finally get to catch up. Oh, before we move on to stuff. So, uh, Ron, can I just say online, it's it sounds like you have agreed to be the officiant for the upcoming uh, nuptials between me and Chan, is that is that right? Am I <laughs> yes. hearing that right? Well, it's an really? honor. Thank you for asking me. Uh, yeah. I, this will be my first official duty. I've been asked before, but I did not. Uh, what oh wow! Oh, wow. So that's very. That's, we've that's uh, we've been we've been um, legally allowed to do so for the last I think four years, and um, but this would be my first, and I think. Um, I have the perfect script for you guys. I can't oh, wait wow. to Wow. Well, congratulations, <laughs> guys. I, I, that's the first I'm hearing about it, too. Thanks. Yeah, no, I just I, I just thought uh, spring a little good news. And yeah. uh, I mean, there's not, I mean, I, Ron, there's not going to be any free food or anything like that. Literally, we're probably <laughs> just going to show up to your office and just, just get it done. <laughs> we have nothing that's, planned so far. That's basically but, how me, my wife and I did it, too. Take you, out for, Ron, take you out for noodles. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that sounds great, guys. I yeah. can't wait. Um, anyway, I, I don't really have like a set agenda. I just wanted to catch up, Ron. And I know that like, um, you're busy with a whole bunch of things. You're busy with, um, the nursing home issues that have been a part of, um, your agenda for years now. I know you're working on, um, the plight of New York city's home health aids and, uh, the way they've be, they're being exploited by a lot of these, uh, provider agencies and i also know you're working on um this new buffalo bill stadium thing that uh you've i think you've described as a boondoggle or someone has described as a boondoggle to new york mm -hmm. taxpayers and you've introduced some very creative legislation to address that so those are things i'm aware of but look as a just as a new yorker as a constituent um i guess i'll lead off with sort of like a framing question mm -hmm. which is you know, I, I have heard people 
in their 50s and 60s who have lived in New York City their whole life who have said uh, quite, to me, rather incredulously that this, this might be the worst situation or the worst time they've ever experienced in New York City. It, it strikes me like that might be overly pessimistic. I don't know, but I understand why people say that. There's like a crime wave. Well, well there is. I mean, for me, it is yeah. like I have been here for like 20 years and I never feel like so unsafe, even when I'm walking mm. around. That's like, you know. That's a big part of it. Yeah. 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 You'd have to and, go back farther than that. For it to be worse, I guess, like in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I don't know yeah. if Asian and Asian women were specifically targeted the way they are now. No, that's but on true. top of that, we've got a, we've actually got a pretty serious unemployment problem in New York City, from what I understand, which is being covered up because they keep saying that the national numbers are really good, um, even though those numbers are not reliable, I think. And uh, but and we've got people leaving the city. You've got population decline, yep. but at the same time, we've got rents that are going through the roof uh and it just seems like you know you nothing's really quite going right and i just wanted to just say that and and um wonder ron like whether you share those sentiments or whether you think people are being perhaps a little bit overly pessimistic about the situation in new york yeah i mean i for one have been trying to raise the red flag before COVID, all the warning signs were in front of us for years. You know, household debt was going up the roof. Um, New York City, New York State was ranked as the worst place for upper social mobility even before COVID. Oh, wow. All those signs were leading up to this moment. And, and now we're all busy trying to put a Band-Aid, a bunch of Band-Aids, and trying to trying – to, make people feel at least in the, for in the, in the interim a little bit safer so they can be more productive but i think we're we're just way past the point of uh even discussing you know how to offer long-term solutions anymore we're just we can't even imagine a better society at this point we just kind of everyone's kind of just giving up gaslighting each other and thinking every you know which is as long as we don't talk about it, hopefully mm. things will get better. But that's not what's happening. I mean, I think, and and, and unfortunately, um, Asian American communities are at the short end of the stick. We, we are easy, we're the easier targets of people and communities that have been marginalized and left behind for decades. Fifty percent of the attacks are people who um, have history of mental health issues, and the other fifty percent these are these are like young men of color from black and Hispanic communities looking at the news and now they think it's okay. It's, it's like, it's almost a normal thing to come out and take out the anger and frustration at the first Asian person they see, you know, and, and everyone now is busy trying to put a bandaid on how to control this without addressing the core problem of how we got here, you know, lack, you know, lack of housing, lack of investment in, in underserved communities, lack of job, real job opportunities, because we're so consumed by bribing these big companies like Amazon or giving a billion dollars to people who live in Florida, the, the guy, the Pigulas who own the Buffalo Bills, mm -hmm. thinking those are the economic drivers that's going to save the day. And it's not. And we've been saying this for years, that we need to invest directly into the communities. And we haven't done that. And this is what we get at the end of the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost hear, I don't know whether this is still like a, 
you know, a thing that's being discussed, but I wasn't there like talk about trying to bring more gambling and casinos mm. into New York City and other types of things. I don't know if that's still yeah. a live discussion or not, but Yeah, so constitu- constitutionally New York State is allowed to have three uh, more casinos, maybe, maybe not constitution, but just legally, our laws allow us to have three more license licensees for casinos, um, and that can be allocated to downstate New York, New York downstate part of New York, which covers Long Island, Westchester, New York City. So now they're talking about bringing three potential casinos and trying to put a process around it where the local communities. Um, and stakeholders all have to sign off. Otherwise, they can't qualify. Um, that's one of the safeguards that they're trying to put in in case the communities don't want it in their in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, many uh, people think just putting a revenue driver like that in the middle of Times Square, um, you know, will drive a lot of foot traffic and um, create a, create a bunch of revenues for the state. Um, and others feel this is a regressive way of raising revenue, that it ultimately results in more social problems down the, lo- down the road for uh, marginalized communities. So we're in the middle of debating it and, and trying to figure out uh, a solution. Yeah, I don't I f- see much. Sorry, go ahead. Tim. No, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, I don't see much difference between that and sort of paying for a, a football stadium. Like, I, I feel like it's a very... As regressive or or sort of business forward way of trying to to fill the hole without much of a, a you know without much of a long term plan. It's just sort of like the idea. It seems to me is that you know people like gambling, casinos make money, and sort of question mark, question mark, question mark. The you know the community or the city will get better, or there'll be more money. Um, Seems right. very short-sighted. Right. Oh, we're not. The only difference is we wouldn't be subsidizing um, any of the casinos. They would have to pay to qualify. Um, so we're not giving any money to build any casinos. The and 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 forty years of data have shown that any professional sports facilities is not right. a good economic model. They don't. They they don't. They don't make any money off of the stadiums and. Giving taxpayers money to build a stadium is the worst possible. Yeah, no, for sure. Make. Even if we didn't give them money, it wouldn't actually drive much. Co- correct. Uh, economic activity. I, you know, I just worry about a you know, I just worry about a casino sort of being seen as like a alternative or a way to drive money, even if we don't give them public funds to build it. Um, but I guess they'll debate it, it. The casino thing and the NF, you know, the stadium like sports thing. Sports betting. Yeah. Yeah, sport, sports betting and, and all this. It, it just seems, and also even, I mean, honestly, um, and I know you know Andrew Yang pretty well, and he had talked about, I think even Eric Adams, right? He's he's big on this, like trying to bring more crypto into uh, New York City. And uh, I know that jury's still out on crypto. I am very, I feel very, like there's a lot of shadiness going on with crypto, obviously. But it seems to me that like a lot of these political plans these visions for how to like fix the city don't really seem to like you said i i don't i feel like it's not really about a vision for like you know building a great city and and um making it a a a a, a place where you know people can quote achieve their dreams and and things like this and a city right. that has like you know a vibrant culture and everything 
And really, it seems like it's being driven by addressing budget holes and dealing right. with money. It's really about money and solvency at this point. Is that how politics works now in New York, or has it always worked that way? Or what? well, I, I think there's a couple of things at, at the at the very top of the food chain of power in places like Albany and New York people still believe in an outdated model of economic development that's from the 1980s, like neoliberal mindset, where people, they think that they can bribe billionaires and big companies to come here and produce jobs. And that's how, mm -hmm. that's, that's how we do things. Trickle down. Uh, trickle down, mm -hmm. yeah, economics. And Democrats have even, I think, worsened uh, this model after Ronald Reagan. Like, we're the, we're the ones, the Wall Street Democrats taking this to a whole different level of trick or down bribing billionaires to stay and companies to come here uh, to do business. And I think we should be uh, evaluating economic growth by how much money actually leaves communities. But what, what, how much does our policies result in extraction of money from our mm -hmm. communities? Mm -hmm. And if we, so looking at how money flows uh, locally and how much it recirculates, that's how that should be the measuring stick of how we invest in our in our local communities, um, and people don't want to do that because a you can't really monetize off of that model, right? Like for mm -hmm. a politician who's running for governor that's raising fifty hundred million dollars to run for higher office, how do you monetize the system? Like you got to go to bed with Jeff Bezos and all these people um, to raise money for you. And it, but if you invest directly into the people and communities where your your the, your money is going to the pockets of people and communities where the money will recirculate, you can't monetize from that from that process. So I, I so I think campaign finance is is a big part of this equation. Um, the state will be having will be rolling out a campaign finance plan starting in two years, and I think that will result in massive change of how we treat. Um, economic development and public accountability of taxpayers' money. But do you think we're in bad hands right now with like Hochul? And obviously you thought we were in really bad hands with Cuomo, which is why, um, you know, you seem to have no qualms about having gone after him and essentially began the uh, process that led to his downfall. Are we, in, are we still in bad hands, you think? Or well, not just Hochul, but like in general, like the ruling... Yeah, Cla you know the, the 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 people in power in New York. Do yeah, they have I mean, plans, or is just, this just are they just slaves to, you know, yeah. big money interests? Or yeah, I mean, just look at how, what we're focused on in the state budget. Instead of figuring out how to raise wages for home care workers for a week, we're debating the Buffalo mm -hmm. Bill Stadium because she completely hijacked the agenda um, for the last two weeks. Um, this is the last thing we should be talking about. We should be figuring out how to. You know, invest into nursing home facilities, home care workers, our schools. Hundred percent. Yeah, and we're not doing. We're not. We haven't even come together to talk about any of the important topics the last few days because the governor wants to get this done, and she's from Buffalo. I think she made promises to the Pagulas, the commissioners, you well, know, her, and she wants to deliver. And they're coming. Husband, off, they're coming. They're actually coming off a good season, so I'm yeah. sure like everyone's all fired up for this or something, you know? Yeah, I mean the the Western region definitely, you know, wants it according to the poll. But the rest of New York, when you talk to the, the voters, 
they like the bill, so we have no problems with the team. But when you asked me if we should spend taxpayers' money to build a stadium, it's like overwhelming people say no. This is they don't and, want that. And in my mind, like it, her husband ho- owns the hospitality company that has the exclusive license for all of the uh, all of the um, uh, food and and sort oh, of vending really uh, of I the bills. Jeez, of the current stadium and presumably the the, the new stadium. I mean, it's. It's as clear as corruption as I can possibly see in politics. Yeah, I mean, and, I think. I mean, I don't know. The, I think she. I think he's um, like a general counsel at the con- at the at the company that runs all the all the food and. Um, well, he yeah, but I mean, he he works for the company. I mean, he makes yeah. money off of the <laughs> the company doing well, right? Yeah, um, I mean, correct. I just like I, I don't know. I I look at that and I'm like, there's no. She shouldn't. She shouldn't be able to control that at all, have any say. But since she's a governor, she does. Uh, and I don't know. I yeah. don't want to get don't, sidetracked, I mean, but I just find that news. I'm like, that, that it's incredible we allow that. It makes me really angry, honestly. Yeah. And I, I and, and, and the way that um, the system is set up where we have such a powerful governor, doesn't matter who the governor is, that they're allowed to um, break – essentially the constitution to yeah to do this because we by the by the books she can't now there's there's certain ways that we she can negotiate um these budgets and she missed the deadline to put any of this into the budget so she started leaking uh what she wants and putting it in last minute which is not what the constitution allows the executive to do but because over the last few years under people like como we've been conditioned to give the executive office that much leeway no one has ever challenged that the executive office in court when they continue to do this and the danger is if we don't stop it what's what's to stop the future governors of giving more money to the hiltons to the trump hotels you know they can do whatever they want the budget and and they get away with it yeah and and sort of the to, to tie it back to to the home health and the nursing home stuff Part of the budget I saw, or you know, maybe this is wrong, but I saw that, and, and I'm not saying that like they they announced this at the same time for any reason in particular, but around the same time, it came out that the um, proposed budget will have an 800 million dollar reduction for child and and family welfare services. Not that I think those systems and those departments, you know, are great them in them in and of themselves, but it just sends a message to me when. You know the bills are going to get eight hundred fifty million dollars, and then the you know child and family welfare welfare is going to get a reduction of eight hundred million dollars. Like it just, it looks really bad. <laughs> and what are the, our priorities in, in New York? Right, and, and and to to even go further, um, the some of the new economists last twenty years have argued with tangible data that. The return on investment for money is much greater when you invest in child education and child care. Um, when, yeah. you, when you do that, the communities actually grow at a much better, bigger rate and you attract fam- working families, talent to those local neighborhoods, which, co- which also then attracts the businesses and companies to come to those communities. So it's a win-win model. And for them to now at the same time reduce the amount and give the money to a billionaire who don't actually even live in New York State or live in Buffalo, 
it's it, it's pre, it's preposterous. Also, the money part of the money that she's claiming is not coming from taxpayers. That she's they just want a settlement from um, one of the tribal nations in upstate New York. Um, I'm like the name just I can't remember the name right now, but um, but yeah, they're using indigenous money that they want in court. <laughs> To, to <laughs> hand it over to the billionaires living in Florida. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Ugh. I, Shannon and I were just talking before the pod. I mean, it really feels like for special interests, like for wealthy people that are going after policy to sort of further enrich themselves and really with no other priority. The thing is with them, they, they're the ones that have the most stomach for politics and they're the ones that are most, it seems like, politically involved and they're always playing offense. You know, like yeah, the yeah. ball is they're, they're they're always in possession of the ball and they're always pushing. And for the rest of us, it seems like to the extent we're even paying attention to the game, we're always playing defense and we're always giving up ground. You know, like there's never there's never really like a change of possession. And it's just, you know, them all the time running their plays. And and them, uh, I yeah. feel like for the rest of people, we don't even know what's going on. And there's nothing much we can do about this. Yeah, um, which is why when I um, took on the former governor last year, I was even more assertive when the new governor um, came to right. power. Like I, while every Democrat was rolling out the red carpet and celebrating um, the first woman governor. Uh, to take office and really just highlighting the identity performative politics that we all hide behind. Like I wrote an op-ed asking her 10 questions uh, and, and asking her to commit to not take special interest money, uh, not to take nurse hospital nursing home money, and, and really try to hold her accountable up front because I recognize if I didn't do that and I had a small window to do so, um, things will never change. And here we are now. We're everyone, now everyone's complaining, uh, but we just don't know. As liberals, Democrats, pro- sometimes progressives, we don't know how to win. You know, we just like you, like you said, team, um, end up playing defense all the time, and don't know really how to punch up at power. Yeah, I think it. I think it has to do with. I mean, I think it has something to do with what you said, where there's just no vision anymore. Yeah. There's no vision of the good city, of the great city, of the good life in the great city. You know, like everyone's just coping. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just a rough time, man. It's like, uh, I don't know. It's just it seems like dark days in New York City. But um, before we get like too, too uh, uh, depressing about this, um, when it, you know, when it comes to the two issues that I see you uh, talking about the most, uh, one being the nursing homes. And, you know, did we learn, you know, did the lessons that we maybe should have learned, but but have not yet learned uh, through the COVID experience. And the second being the, uh, and I've heard this from a lot of friends um, who have been talking about it. In fact, Shan's father used to be a home health aide. Uh, my mom um, too. That... And, and her and her mother. Wow. Okay. And um, it's been a. It's just become something that a lot of people that I know have been talking about. And I was wondering, Ron, if you could um, maybe just like 
introduce those issues to people in a way that we can understand um, the the sort of not the totality of it, but just like the general yeah. picture of what's going on and why is this so important to you? Are are these issues, the, both of these issues, so important to you? Right. I mean, I've just like many people, I got lost um, a family member in a nursing home during COVID. Um, my mother also passed away last year um, of COVID. Um, so it's personal uh, for me, just like to many people. But as a uh, lawmaker that directly oversees the issues of older adults, like I've taken my role very seriously in calling out the the corruption um, behind uh, these industries. And the nursing home and home care is actually very intricately tied together, where mm-hmm. 20 to 30 percent of institutionalized older adults don't need to be there um, if we have a functioning home care system in place. Now, the reason why the system itself pushes people to be institutionalized, whether it be nursing homes or even prisons, is because there's more money to be made um, when you institutionalize people. We spent up to $200,000 a year in a, uh, when we send a person away to nursing homes. It costs us maybe between twenty to $40,000 a year with Meals and Wheels and all these programs to have a, a functioning home care uh, wraparound service around an older adult. So by that, by design, there's more secondary middlemen that extracts more money mm-hmm. out of Medicaid, Medicare, all the systems, trillions of dollars we put in when we institutionalize people. Um, Wait, so you're saying that these nursing homes have the same business model as like for-profit prisons, that kind of thing? Is it- it's, when you look at it that way, yeah. I mean, wow. whether we whether we reimburse them through Medicaid um, to nursing homes or you know the prisons rely on different pot of funding, uh, it, it, there's there's a process to get the money to them, and there's all these people that are attached to those facilities that make money, whether it be prison guards or people, you know, you know no show jobs in nursing homes. That's that, that is so corrupt sometimes. Um, and all those things were in, in full display during COVID, where we were we were exposing them um, uh, for their negligence, gross negligence, and corruption. Because what's been happening in the nursing home side is that all these for-profit companies, dubbed as the nursing home syndicate, has mm-hmm. have bought all these facilities up, including publicly run facilities, over the last 10, 15 years. And created a like a, a monopoly around them, where they're cutting corners and they're making over a billion dollars of profits every single year. Even when we passed the law in light of what happened with the former governor around the nursing home scandal, to mandate um, safe staffing in these facilities, and a certain percent, seventy percent, must be spent on direct care. The industry sued the state to yeah. threaten the state where the current governor put a moratorium on the law that could that should have gone into effect on April um, on January 1st to give them a pass for a few months. And this is wasn't there argument that it was against it was unconstitutional because it was illegal seizure by the right. government they were because, citing the, saying that they were constitu- basically making the argument that they're constitutionally um like that their profits are constitutionally protected. Right. They were, they were arguing the takings clause. <laughs> Ridiculous. Right. And, and, and in the lawsuit, they cited 
all the money that they made and they made in part of the lawsuit. So we saw on the lawsuit they were making over one point one billion dollars during COVID. Wow! And they're, right. And they're, so they're, yeah, it's it, crazy. Right. I mean, insane. Like this the is, argument is like, yeah. Instead of instead of like, they sort of just been in one eighty, and they're like, no, 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 we deserve the money, and it's against the constitution for you guys to to take it from us or to force us to use it in, uh, you know, the, the fulfillment of what our duties, which is actually taking away from profit. So you can't force us to do what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Um, so it's insane. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's, it's public dollars. This is, this is Medicaid yeah. money. So this is taxpayers money that, that should be held accountable, but you know, this is what they've done. And, right. and they, ha- they, and Hotchel, sorry, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. No, and Hotchel, um, she, she caved. Yeah, no, and, and and it's it's because um, they own politicians. You know, hospitals and nursing homes, and these donors raise millions and millions of dollars uh, for powerful politicians, and it they end up it ends up resulting in a system whether it's whether it's the former governor or the current governor where we we hide behind words like industry stability, right, where we shield them from lawsuits for criminal liability. Um, and and always hide behind industry protection, and this wasn't it wasn't always like this. Like we went through a similar cycle around nursing home uh, scandals twenty five years ago, and we pushed back and went the other direction and protected residents by passing laws that give them like bill rights of what they're all what they're mm-hmm. owed as residents and protect the consumers, patients, and the people. But but that's not how we treated um, the situation around COVID. What we they, they, the former governor and and the Department of Health and all the people that are in power, they're just protecting the profits of these big industries and not holding them accountable. So that's where where, where I have pushed back for the last couple of years and trying to work directly with families and consumers in trying to rectify the situation. But the home care is a whole different sector where we should be doing a lot better especially for our community because mm-hmm. so many immigrant asian women are in this sector and they have been taking advantage of um for years where the industry is rampant with wage theft um and the again the industry is being now guarded and shielded by what i call professional progressives that are that are just in it to you know to to shield the providers and not i, I not, hadn't heard that so what are they doing or what are what are these quote-unquote progressives so um, saying other, so, in defense of these illegal wage theft practices and also just labor violations right forcing people to work 24-hour shifts um, yeah yeah but what are they saying so, so there are many, um, you know, my, our friends, our mutual friends, you know, work in the nonprofit space. And some of the biggest offenders of wage theft are from these nonprofits, right. such as the Chinese American Planning Council, CPC, is arguably the largest um, Asian American nonprofit in the nation. Um, that the home care business alone, and they're very laterally integrated. They do child care, senior care. Um, they own. They have like eight LLCs. They own real estate, and the home care business alone has is a two hundred million dollar business for them. And the way that the law is written 
if you are taking $200 million of Medicaid, you should be raising about four to $6 million to compensate for overtime, which, the, which that burden falls on the employer, not the state. So if you're, and the law also stipulates that if the worker is assigned to 24-hour shifts, the state covers up to 11 hours of that. And the rest, if the worker doesn't get enough sleep, the required sleep and eating time, the provider must pay for the, for the entirety of the 24 hours. See, groups like CPC and many others didn't follow that law. As a result, there was years of private arbitration that resulted finally um, in, a, in a guilty verdict where 1199, the biggest healthcare union, found 42 agencies guilty of wage theft. Um, this was after six years of private arbitration. Um, the problem is the settlement, the award uh, is woefully low. The remedy is so low, Very low. where yeah. it's like 0.05% of what an average worker is owed, which is ridiculous. That uh, yeah. So, uh, what what um what are the remedies for something like this? Because you know, I, I just don't you know, like Team was saying, we don't want to just talk about sort of how bad it is and complain or like stuff like that. So, for you as a because you are a lawmaker, um, what plans are in place or what have you already sort of tried to introduce right. that would try to fix this or at least try to force them? To do better in the future, yeah. I mean, I think class um, action forced arbitration is toxic, right? And it should right. be. And that's a larger issue, right? I mean, of all yeah. just forced arbitration and everything. Yeah, because because when you because now you got all these providers looking at what happened and, and realizing, oh, I'm better off hiding behind um, collective agreement because the unions are protecting the industry over the workers. Um, and if I'm, if I continue to exploit workers, I can settle at 0.05% at the end of the road. And that's, so we need to address that um, component uh, to hold the, to hold the agencies accountable. So a good example is a non, non-unionized um, home care provider were sued by six employees for $600,000, and they got every cent in, in court, um, where a unionized member is getting or is told to take point zero less than 0.05% of what they're owed, and, and they can't sue because it's been already privately arbitrated. So that's one component of it. But the other component is to have financial accountability. And this is something that almost no one wants to talk about because it's complex and complicated, and it also um, insults some of their friends who are in this space that are supposedly progressive. So we, we're, we're fighting really hard to raise the wages under a campaign called Fair Pay for Home Care, um, okay. with, but without talking about the financial accountability. So under Fair Pay, for example, that group CPC, if they if we win this fight, they would now get three hundred million dollars uh, for wage Medicaid wage reimbursements, which means now they have to raise probably ten to twelve million dollars to make their workers whole for overtime and twenty four hour shifts. Um, 
they're not going to do that. They won't, they won't even raise a dollar now to pay, pay for overtime. How are they going to raise $10 million? Right. So it doesn't seem to solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. So so that's kind of where I am. I'm stuck at in real time and trying to have discussions around financial accountability to make sure that our workers, as we raise Medicaid reimbursements, um, the providers do their part and raise money to pay for overtime. Okay, yeah. Um, and so, and another part of the home health thing, and I think it, and this came to mind when you were talking about just the fact that, uh, we probably, our ratio or our mix of people in nursing care versus having the ability to stay home and have a home health aid, um, is way out of whack. Um, but this is something that I've, you know, so part of this is also that, um, you know, not everyone needs to have a professional home health aid, right? Like there are tons of people who have family members who stay home to care for other family members, right? Um, Especially if they don't necessarily, they don't have a particularly difficult uh, medical issue. They're just old and and can't sort of live on their own. Um, Have you guys thought of, has there been um, thought about like reimbursing people uh that that do things like that like stay home to take care of their own own loved ones yep um yeah yeah it's it's one it's one of the top things that are stuck right now in negotiation uh where we have a what we call a caregivers tax credit okay um where people who are uh, taking care of their loved ones are reimbursed uh through our taxes uh for doing such work um, but it hasn't. It's it's not moving um, because there's resistance on how to hold the money accountable. I mean, it, it's and it's ironic because they don't want to hold the providers accountable right. for committing wage theft, but they're worried about everyday caretakers committing fraud. Like, and, and that's and that's the irony of like the state government, uh, the status where so, we are. So they're worried. So they're like penny wise and pound right. foolish here. In my correct. Yeah, and there's also other uh, options for older adults who don't need full-time health aid. Like we have um, uh, social daycare centers that take the same amount, the same amount of reimbursements as a home health aid. And I was just there over the weekend on some of the, my local ones in Flushing, and people, older adults, go there. They socialize. Mm-hmm. There's they give they give free breakfast and lunch, um, and there's all this pro, social programming. Um, around available to them, which if you do it right, it's actually a very health, mentally healthy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Outlet. Wow. All right. Um, yeah, it's all about, I mean, it just seems to be like both issues seem to be related to um, a state that is, what I mean by that is is a government, including the federal government through Medicare, uh, sorry, through Medicaid, um, that is willing to provide money, but is not really willing or able to provide the services. And it's just sort of like letting the private sector, you know, I guess, yeah. depending on the private sector to fill that void that our states and governments don't do anymore. Yeah. And that includes like schools. And now it's yeah. includes taking care of um, our elders. Um, it just becomes business and profits and, I mean, setting aside like how we're actually going to do this, I mean, uh, I I guess like the idea of the state directly administering these things on a nonprofit basis is really no longer feasible. 
that's that's you know, I think that's the only solution in my mind that I can think of that can actually make this work. Um, and and the and a great example of why a a functioning publicly run system is still the most effective way of delivering care is during COVID. One of the only nursing homes that didn't have any fatalities in the state were up were some of the upstate county run nursing homes um, that were that were publicly backed. You know the employees have a pensions. You know they're public servants. Um, and when you when you're doing it when you're doing it at the county level where it's not too big of a bureaucracy like New York City, they run it very effectively. So there's a there's a middle ground where it's not too bureaucratic, where people we get criticized for you know being corrupt, you know public servants, etc. Sure, yeah. And and the, but there's a middle ground at the county level. I think that's highly effective that we need to revisit. Unfortunately, under Como, we sold most of it. We privatized most of those public facilities uh, into the hands of of these nursing home syndicates. But that's where the solution lies. But uh, but right now, the people who are controlling the money that extract as much money from healthcare are groups like the managed care organizations, um, the the intermediaries that handle the reimbursements of of insurance companies. They're all for profits. So just just think about like if you if you empower for profit intermediaries to handle the reimbursements of public dollars they're not in it for care they're they're trying to make as much profit of the money that we hand over to them before they reimburse them toward care um so the whole model is completely out of whack it doesn't it doesn't work it's not designed to maximize care it's it's designed to maximize extraction of money from right. the system Right. It's just more rent-seeking behavior, right? Exactly. It's a little bit more right. sophisticated. Right. I mean, there's some theoretical idea about it to say like, well, you know, the you know, we're going to pay this much for it and if these companies are as good as they say they are and the private sector is as disciplined and driven compared <laughs> to the public sector, that they will find ways to do this more efficiently and if they can do it more efficiently, they should be rewarded and thus we have a system that incentivizes innovation. And that probably sounds good on the uh, you know, assembly floor, but the reality of it seems to be quite different that this is it just becomes this uh cutting corners it's not efficiency it's cutting corners mm-hmm. um and it's corruption it's a lot of this is about political corruption and getting the public spigot of money to to open wide and aim directly at people who game the system not because they have um a particular skill or passion or expertise in um, the industry that they are now in, which is caring for older people. I would not want my older relatives, my parents or anyone anywhere close to these people. You know, nope. they sound like nightmares, to yeah. be honest. And it's, it's, it's a full-blown crisis. You know, we have a yeah. population that's going to, the older aging population will quadruple in size in 30 years. Um, and we're sleepwalking right into this, like the and and there's so much money, like you're saying, that's being just thrown into it without fixing the way that it's delivered in, in terms of care. Um, and and the, and then end of the day, the message that we're giving to the larger population is that in this country, it is the worst place to be if you're poor and you're old. Yeah. 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 
So I just kind of curious. So as the like a general public, like what can we do、mm. to help or maybe like push it toward to you know like a government run program instead of like privately run program? Yeah, I, I mean that's that's literally what I wake up and you know go to bed thinking about you know different ways to push back、um, for the public to take ownership. And every sector we, we have these,、um, we've been having these、um, publicly engaged campaigns.、Um, and sooner or later, I think one of these campaigns will win. Like for example, right now there's a push. To take over Con Edison and to make you into a public utility. Oh, that'd be good.、Um, and other states have done it. Other states have turned into co-ops. Like there's different ways to like control this. Con Edison, you know, has board of directors that are trustees that are making millions and millions of dollars、uh, while they raise rates without any oversight.、Um, you know, so so it's called a public power campaign,、um, and I think we can do. You can do similar initiatives around healthcare. Uh, but as soon as we get a win and one, I think we'll be able to regain public capital, and that's what I think where we must land in the next few years. We can't be private capital has been unleashed and unchecked for four decades to a point, and it's not it's not like how it used to be. I, I don't I don't think even Ronald Reagan could have envisioned how private capital has taken off. Um, if he was alive, if he was alive now, I don't think that this was his intent. I think even Reagan's intent was to have a mixed economy, a balanced economy, where the public sector and the public capital was robust and strong. That's not what we have now.、Um, China is actually a mix, a perfect, balanced, mixed economy. Ironically, because Americans think that China is a communist、mm-hmm. country, we love to vilify it, but it's not. It's seventy、yeah. percent privatized and thirty percent public. I mean that's a mixed economy, and we should be looking at China, and we should compete trying to really raise our public capital. But that's not what we do because every time we talk about such, you know, initiatives, people will yell you for being a, a socialist. You want to be a communist China and and have a public takeover. <laughs> you know, that, that's literally how they talk to you. But but you I、want. mean, like、yeah. Social Security and Medicare is like a、uh, government-run program already. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people depend on it, so I don't、they、know why、it. people always have like being like kind of brainwashed into believing、yeah. such idea is not good. Yeah, that's the irony of it, right? That's、mm-hmm. it. so when you're benefiting from it, you don't even realize like this. The best things that that empower middle class people are socialized,、um, you know, care. But but for whatever reason, when we socialize the risks. Of billionaires, we don't ask anything. <laughs> like we try to give a billion dollars away to the Buffalo Bills owner. Like we somehow think, oh, well, they deserve it because they earned it, right? Like, and and we when we think about socializing the risks for everyday small business owners, somehow you know the people who control the narrative, including corporate media, will. We write that as being one step towards socialism and a fear monger、uh, of words like socialism and communism. But I think there's a way to go around it. I think if we educate the public, this is about public capital and about balancing the economy and making sure that we have a functioning economy.、Um, I think we can. We there's paths to get there. That you know that's.、Um... The, 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 when you brought up China, you know, it, I think there's a further irony 
which is right now, uh, you know, obviously these are not good times in terms of our relationship with Russia. And we have been, you know, sort of um, looking at Russia as sort of almost like a failed state or a dystopian society where, you know, and admittedly they have an extremely unequal distribution of wealth. They have these oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs everyone knows about. Uh, you have like a huge portion of the society living in, you know, at or near poverty and you have oligarchs that are living in you know one you know 500 million dollar yachts parked in you know uh in, in the mediterranean and we look at that with horror right rightfully i think americans look at that sure, and are yeah. like that is not what we want but the ironic thing is that was exactly the process of 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 the same process of tearing apart the state which in that case was, you know, the the de- decommunization of the Soviet Union, um, and privatizing all of their industry and giving it to the cronies of the personal friends um, of mm-hmm. like Boris Yeltsin. That's where the oligarchs come from. And when I looked back, and um, you know, I'm just, you know, I've never, Ron, I've never really thought about this, but you're right. This is about education because no one taught me about this until it was. Until I, you know, people are started telling me about this, and I started looking it up online. But I mean, that was essentially what Clinton was doing to, you know, beginning with Clinton. I feel is when we essentially turned on the government and decided that government itself was hopelessly inept, and the only way to make government work was to auction it off to the highest bidder and let someone with a mind for business and profit run our schools. Our hot, you know, our healthcare system, our retirement system. I and mean, if it wasn't for Monica Lewinsky, I think we would have probably gotten to uh, privatized uh, Social Security. Even yeah. right now, we're talking probably, about like yeah. we, we're talking about a food shortage. Well, uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Bill Clinton. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about a food shortage. And I look back, and Bill Clinton had eliminated uh, the Strategic Grain Reserve at the request of like Archer Daniels Midland and, Com- and Cargill and companies like that because they wanted to privately manage grain surpluses and all this stuff. And I was like, how far does this go? And why is it that everyone seems to be have been educated to hate government or at least to think that government is inept? That if a government if the government does something, it's, you know, just a bunch of people sleeping on the clock and nobody wants to do anything. Whereas if it's a business, because they're <laughs> doing it, you know, because they're disciplined by the rules of the market, you know, they're just going to be running like the tightest shit possible. Right. And it's it is. I don't think that there is any basis uh, in reality for this. In fact, I think oftentimes it's the opposite. And it is a matter of education, isn't it? Because government, all the government ever does, the government is like one of the worst self promoters I've ever seen. And everyone who runs for office basically spends all their time saying that the government sucks, almost (laughs) apologizing for it. Right? Yeah. And the liberals either come in saying, "I'm going to fix it because it's always broken. It's no good. I'm going to fix it," or Conservatives come and saying, I'm going to destroy it and, and strip it down because it doesn't work. But both just admit it doesn't work. And uh, look at the private companies. They're the ones that spend all the money on PR and advertising and are educating us into believing that for-profit means that they're efficient, they're, ex- they're experts, they, they're passionate, they're competent. And I, I feel like this we're starting to realize like none of this is true, is it? I mean, this might this might be like a uh, a thirty year old thirty year long delusion that we've been under. Yeah, no, I, you're. It's. It, I think it's that's spot on, Dean. I mean, it's 
it's why when we push back this week uh, with our own proposal to buy the Buffalo Bills and have right. equity, if we're going to spend $1.2 billion, it's not $850 million if you add in the capital money that we're trying that's to commit right. to. That's right. It's like $1.4 billion. Yeah, right? $1.2 billion. Then that's 70% of the financing of the stadium. We should get equity. And and so far, people have been very receptive. Uh, and I think people are understanding that it's, you know, why are we just diminishing and the public sector and is selling it off in piecemeal every time you get a chance, right? Like this, why join, why be in public service if you're not going to defend public capital? I just don't, I just, and I think there's more of us now, um, you know, really pushing that narrative in a meaningful way in places like Albany and City Hall, where we have people, the new wave of leaders who've won to understand how to revitalize public good. And without it, like, there is no democracy. This is, you know, I think we get a couple of shots at this. And I think we've reached a point where we can't beat private capital because the, the way that they manage us is very sophisticated. And it's easy to pit people against each other. It's easy to play identity politics, gender politics, and distract us from really building coalitions to take our country, you know, city and country back for to, to protect our communities. Like I don't, I, we don't even, like you said earlier, like we said earlier, we don't even have a vision of what a different system could even look like at this point. And the private capital understands that, and they, you know, they know how to control that narrative. Yeah, because no one wants to watch. No one wants to just constantly play defense. I mean, defense is not exciting. I mean, you want to play offense, right? right? right. And I think you're, you know, maybe this is. I don't know if this is. Uh, I mean, frankly, I am not a particularly politically active person, I have to admit. And I think, I wish I was, but I think part of it is because I feel like politicians are uh, too apologetic for government or too too uh, anti-government. And you're right. Why get into government if all you want to do is to uh, uh, seed, uh, seed control and seed ownership to private capital? My question for people like that is, why aren't you in business? Right. Why are you in in the public sector in the first place? Why don't you? Why aren't you in industry making loads of money? Is it because you're second rate? You know what I mean? Like what? <laughs> well, or, I know, think it's or, part of their strategy of like because there's a revolving door almost of legislators and business, right? But right. it just so seems like, below the dignity of of people to say. I mean, look, there. Admit it. Look, there are people like a Larry Summers who's like, I mean, you're look, like, you're not a public servant, man. I I, no. I know you're like, you know, you're here as a representative of Goldman Sachs or whatever, you know, yeah. when he was in when he was in power, but like. What I'm saying is like people who really are committed to a lifetime of public service and being in politics, but then spend that entire their entire life kissing up to private capital and demeaning this concept of public capital, demeaning the the, the concept of of the state. I mean, that's a, OK. That's your that's your view of it. That's how you view, uh, you know, the right way to run um, our society. I don't agree with it. And I think the results don't agree with them but the other issue to me is like well, why are you in public office in the first place because if you yep, hate it so yep. much i feel like you should go get a job working for wall street or something why are you here <laughs> yeah is it because you're making more money because you're corrupt or is it because you just don't have what it takes to to, yeah, <laughs> to become I mean, I like so. you know, a master of the universe on wall street <laughs> and you just want to kiss their ass all day or what what's going on with these people I think it's it's a combination of I think two things. Like right? one is once we unleashed private capital in the 1980s, 
where there was a race to get to the billionaire class because they can raise all the money. And I think the the Democratic Party justified it as a means to an end. I said, we need, if you don't do it, we're going to lose this ground to the Republicans and we have to compete. We have to really, you know, be business friendly. Otherwise, we, you know, we're going to be outspent. We can't raise the money. And secondly, I think we've, over the course of doing this for the last 20, 30 years, you, I think we've convinced ourselves in culturally that private sector is just better. And this is just a means um, to facilitate, government has become a means to just facilitate markets for private players to do their jobs. So that's literally what we debate on in places like Albany. Whenever we do even a slight improvement to protect our climate or our environment, like for example, when we're trying to change our state fleet into all electric vehicles, I mean, we require right. all the state cars to go electric. Democrats were standing up and saying, well, we're very cognizant of how this could impact the market. I'm like, who cares? Like, <laughs> who cares? Who, who cares? Well, like, also, I, I, <laughs> I see that like if, if the state and how many thousands of vehicles they have, right? That might push. That might be a push for some private industry, but also an argument for public money to go towards making a much better statewide EV charging infrastructure, right? Right. Um, it seems to go hand in hand, and it's a no-brainer. But I guess not. Right, because 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 Democrats have become so timid, and liberals have become so timid of being being portrayed as an anti-market politician and i just i don't know how we got to this point but soon i'm hoping we can actually have bolder conversations about having public takeover of failing markets that's the discussions we should be having on the floor like this is a failing market and it's our role as a state to take it over because you're not delivering for the people that you're supposed to deliver especially healthcare. That, that or yeah, it should have never yeah. been in the public markets in in the private markets in the first place. Correct, Absolutely, right. and 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 I feel like one of, one of the problems has been this um, over exuberance. Like I think I think it is a it is something like a de-Sovietization. Uh, you know, they called it shock therapy, um, where we basically put the government up for sale uh, starting in the nineties. And you're right; I think it goes past even what. Uh, Reagan had in mind, even uh, what like Milton Friedman I don't know about had in that, mind. But <laughs> uh, well, you know, here's an example, right? Because Reagan was the one who said that the worst thing you can hear is that from someone is that I'm from the government and I'm I'm here to help. Correct. He, yes, I think he not said like he loved the, the government. All right. I think you're right that he set off the ideological backlash against um, the you know the expansion of the state in the 70s and stuff. But I think even then. And I think even Milton Friedman at that time understood that there would be a lot of suffering and that the state would have to at least provide some sort of buffer, which is why when Andrew Yang had announced his um, UBI platform, I was like, this is just a negative income tax for Milton Friedman. True. I mean, it, it is so regressive at this point. I think that's the thing that I think people mistake personally, Ron, is that the left has has become obsessed with soft soft power politics, like identity politics. Um and it, it it is, you know, I'm not anti-woke, right? I, I don't want to be like, because I think there are also right-wing culture warriors who are just fighting the same stupid battles that, that the left-wing is in terms of the quote left-wing. I don't even want to call them left-wing or right-wing. But they are enmeshed in these cultural battles that it, they're just, just not improving anybody's lives. Mm-hmm. 
that see that's the thing is like you know whatever their reasoning is for fighting it's like bottom line is like they are not improving the results the numbers and i want to see i think people want to see material gains that's true um but i think i feel that ron's uh instinct about this being like we need to educate people seems to be correct in that I think this we got educated into this position. We got miseducated. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Don't you think? I think we oh, got yeah, miseducated into this and we've 100%. allowed this to happen and continue to believe that this is the, the like running the same play over and over again. Yeah. Is the right way to do things. And this is where I get angrier at the Democrats than I do the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Because the, you know, it couldn't have gotten this bad if there had been some backbone by the Democrats early on to fight back against it in a, in a, in a more, um, you know, robust way rather than sort of capitulate and say, Oh, we've got to do it or we're going to get outspent. Like Mm -hmm. we could have gone sort of small dollar donation. We could have gone, you know, a lot tougher on reversing those campaign finance rules, um, you know, earlier, but they just didn't. And this is where we are because of it. You see it. It's the same pattern. Absolutely. It's like, um, it's almost like if you go look for it, it's almost like, um, uh you know what is it uh the those um fractals like it's like everywhere you know like uh shan do you remember like there was a zoom meeting uh not so long ago about the, the homeless sh- shelter the homeless yeah. shelter in 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 chinatown Grand and it was Street. a for yeah. yeah it was a for-profit thing and it was a company yeah they're like, like- all the people just yelling at that guy and tell him to shut up because for the whole time he was like, well, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But for the whole time he was saying like, it's a good thing for homeless people. But if the Chinatown people in danger because the homeless people, then you need to call the cop. That's what he said. So all the people just like tell him to shut up. Hmm. <laughs> That's horrible. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, but it was, but, but it, was, it was a company giving the, yeah. oh, that's yeah. my point. Is that it wasn't the. It wasn't like the government. It wasn't like someone from the the city government or the, the government. They they have people in the chat, but those people just keep saying that like we work so hard for the homeless people. That's all they said. They never consider like the safety of the you know the Chinatown people. They just say like we put so much work. I don't know why you guys don't appreciate us. That's what the government people said. And I'm but like, they're not. They're, but they're not working hard. They're 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 just handing money over to these companies. I was right. like, if you guys are not working for salary or for profit, are you? Will you guys call yourself? You know, advocate for homeless people? I don't think so. I don't know what they're talking about. It's just purely bullshit for me. And I listened for it for like three hours. Like two hours, they were bullshitting, and the one last hour, just like Chinatown people just yelling at them. Yeah, it's and it's unfortunate it's, because it I think that does show that there's just horrible. a lack of faith in, uh, in like city bureaucrats and politicians to really care about people. You know, like they're just care about any of them. They're justifying right? yeah. a financial relationship with a company, and they're just trying to get people to accept it. I mean, it was. I mean, talk about education. That was an example yeah. of a call that I thought was meant to educate the public. Into acquiescence to these sorts of public-private relationships, you know. How would that even be education when they tell you when well, you are in work. danger, then you need to call the cop? That's all they tell you, and uh, you're like, "What the fuck?" I don't know how you can support to brainwash people with that kind of well, education that's, program. That's the worst. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's an example of awful education, okay, or they're not even trying to educate. I think you're right, uh, Shan. They're just trying to bully and. Uh, force people to to sort of acquiesce 
to what the government Let, wants to do. Let, let's formulate a question for Ron here. Yeah. What does what what does educating the public? Uh, how does that work? Like, how do we do it? Because um, I yeah. think that sounds like the right approach. But how do you? I mean, I'm I'm doing my own, you know, way of uh, pushing back. I've tried many different ways and seize opportunities to um, raise the issue of regaining public control. Uh, the Buffalo Bills is one example. I'm, I'm teaching a class uh, next semester around this very topic, um, setting a blueprint of how to regain public capital um, from from the ground up uh, from this country. Um, and every time we have opportunities, like when the when when, when powerful politicians want to hand out giant corporate giveaways, is a great time um, for. To, edu- to educate the public because, you know, and, and we just need to keep pounding the pavement. This isn't the governor's money. This is mine. This is your money. You know, you, <laughs> you know, like, and they want to give it away. They want to just take it and would just transfer the wealth to people who don't even need it. This is why we have extreme wealth divided inequality and poverty. And this is why we end up fighting between uh, communities of color around homeless shelters because we create designed this system to fail and when once we use every chance to connect these dots um i think the public um little by little will you know hopefully understand to to join these type of fights and i think we're seeing the buffalo bills there's overwhelming consensus around the state that this is not the way uh, to invest taxpayers money yeah because people like you know hearing that story like uh, of that meeting about around the the um, homeless shelter it's just this profound sense of that that public has lost all faith mm-hmm. uh in 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 the government looking out for them uh and it's not, not without reason i mean and especially in the in chinatown i mean chinatown has just been devastated and ignored and the dumping ground yeah. right and um so like how is that there's one thing about education but how does how does the government and government officials get the faith of the people back? Like the belief and the trust that, you know, when you say, when, when, when people like you, Ron, or, or other, your allies say they're going to do something, um, that they're going to do it, number one, and two, that you do have the best interests of people, uh, of all the people, uh, you know, in mind and in heart. I th- right. And I, I think through electoral politics, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm at a point where I'm not sure if we can recover the trust in any time soon. Um, you know, just the tension, like the, the tensions you're mentioning about walking down the street for Asian Americans. I don't know how our community anytime soon will regain the trust of any politician, any poli- any mayor, any governor um, out there, no matter what they say. Um, and I just think we need more people to come in and be honest and not worry about the reelections, you know, and do the yeah. right thing. And because, and, and that's what, that's, and, and the mayor Adams, you know, I've had some private meetings with them. Like I don't agree with everything he's trying to do, but he has some level of honesty when we're having private conversations okay. about the shortcomings and where we are. And I appreciate that. 
Um, he seems but, to me like a practical-minded person. Yeah, like uh, is that does that do you think that's true of him? That he yeah, wants- like if something is failing, like he's not, he doesn't cover it up. Like he'll he'll let me know that this isn't working, and you know I'm gonna try, but I can't make promises because we're talking about 20 years of a failing homeless right. shelter system. Like okay, right, I appreciate the honesty, but you know, show me some signs that we're trying to fix it. You know, yeah. Uh, Whereas, like, I think other politicians will just give you a bunch of platitudes and not give you an honest answer because they don't want that to go out and they don't want to look bad or they don't want to be invalidated uh, by the public. I just think we need more honesty about what's failing in the moment um, if we want to regain the trust. Yeah, I think there's the issue of trust, but there's also just the issue of putting out a, a truly better model. And uh, right. it's not really about the individual politicians and whether we like uh, we like her or him uh, and or trust them or would want to have a drink with them, which I think is the no. model for a lot of the neoliberal shit that came before, which was like, look, uh, just just throw a guy out there that looks like he's, um, you know, like someone you would want to pal around with, you know. Uh, but now I think um, maybe one advantage is that you don't have to win trust away from something because nobody has trust in this neoliberal system anymore. Anyway, Mm -hmm. the problem to me is now nihilism is that people don't want to believe in anything. Mm -hmm. They don't think there's any solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and it, it, maybe that's a better way to start than, you know, fighting against something where everyone believes that it's working very well. Because, I mean, I guess for for, for a decade or two there, things did work uh, and we weren't able to see the corruption and see the the uh, the failures quite as clearly as we do now. So that's maybe an upside to all the darkness around us. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, sorry. Yeah. Ironic, ironically, there's a, there, there's a whole sector behind we were talking about cryptocurrencies earlier there's a whole sector behind crypto people that are not like the ex goldman sachs bros but have but real like innovators that are focused on like community empowerment and self-sufficiency um and building like robust economies to protect themselves like for example um it's, it's, it's not quite crypto right it's like local uh, resilience, local economic resilience models um, in upstate New York and places like Kingston, New York. Th- there's a group called Hudson Valley Current that launched their own community currency, and they have like hundreds and hundreds of local businesses, nonprofits, community groups, and workers who have bought into the system, and and they're scaling um, on their own uh, organically. Uh, all around this model that whatever money they spend, you know, in that region is going to be kept inside that community. I see. Uh, um, Interesting. So, so they don't, they, they, so they were very resilient to any of the recessions, you know, that had occurred during the last few years. Um, and these type of examples have been around uh, for many, I think that every cycle we have deep economic depression or suppression um, but either we build our own models as people no longer trust in electoral politics, or we succumb to big personality types, authoritative types like Donald Trump or Andrew Cuomo that comes in and and really tries to save the day, right? Like that's he's that's, already putting he's putting ads out already. I, was, I just saw one of his TV ads again. Trump, like, right? what, what Trump you, or no, Cuomo? no, 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 Cuomo. And I'm like, Cuomo. what are you doing? Like what? 
Yeah. He was like, I may have made some mistakes, but everything I ever did was for you. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't really believe yeah, that, I don't man. Think so. I don't really believe that. It was for your book. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I, though, I think that the the term public capital yep. is a great term, just ha- giving you my first impression of it, because I don't think Americans are anti-capitalist. I don't think Americans want to turn against the idea that capital is important. Um, and it is important. I think that it is the right model that we have um, a notion of investment and we have a notion of capital. Uh, but the idea of public capital is, I don't, you know, I think that's a better way of saying, uh, you know, let's, let's leverage the state. Let's use the state than to say, you know, what we need is more bureaucracy. We need more state, you know, we need different offices and commissions and, and you know, all this. Let's say, no, I think this idea of public capital is an interesting one. And I think it has one, it ha, it's one that has purchased like internationally uh, and glo- globally. I know that that European um, economist, Yanis Varoufakis, had talked mm-hmm. about uh, public ownership of equities, mm-hmm. that the state should have a stake in all the public companies that it ends up giving subsidies and things for, and that dividends should be paid back to the government, to the state, which are then dividended back out to everyone, to the taxpayers that that yeah. ultimately own those portions. And the, 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 there's real models for that. I mean, it, this isn't um, theoretical. Uh, you know, a lot of big companies in Europe, like Volkswagen, for example, their largest shareholder, I think, is the state of Bavaria, hmm. right? And so no one really thinks of VW as a as a government comp, you know, as a state owned enterprise, but it is in many ways, it is, is, it is actually a German SOE and it's, you know, I mean, it has its problems too, but it's crazy profitable. It's I think number two largest automaker in the world. These are scalable, big ideas, this notion of public capital. And so when you had, I guess, to introduce this idea of public capital through something like Buffalo bills, I mean, what better way to get the public's attention? You're talking about something they understand off the bat. I mean, to be perfectly honest, people don't really like thinking about hospitals and nursing homes because they're why would you, you those are places you don't really want to be, you know, True. unless you have to. Whereas sitting in the stadium, you know, enjoying um, you know, some nachos and watching a, a football game is something that draws interest in. Why not sneak in concepts through things like that? You know? Um why not? Why not leverage football? <laughs> you know? yeah. All right. So uh, I was. I thought that was pretty cool to see personally, and uh, maybe a great way to educate the public, get, draw their interest in again. You know, who knows? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. if we're going to give money to them, I'd rather have a public capital sort of idea where we own the team, than than just sort of give the money away. Right. That's if we're that's, if we're going to give them money, I'm, I'm sort cool of not. A, yeah, like, no, it is, yeah. Our, it is our money, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I'm not. Uh, I'm not in the camp that we should be giving them any money, public or 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 otherwise. But if we're going to do it, I'd rather that, you know, the the state of New York, uh, you know, has a majority stake in them. Yeah, I mean, part part of the proposal is to if you already took public subsidy money, which Buffalo Bills have done for ten years, yeah, and you decide to leave, then the law, the proposal would mandate them to give the state the option, the local government the option, or the community the option per purchase fifty percent of the team. So instead of so the idea the the current governor is saying is that we need to pay them to stay here for 30 years, we're counter-proposing and saying we don't need to do that. We could just find other ways to keep the bills here. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think I think these are fascinating ideas. I mean, I thought that really caught my attention. I don't know, um, really. I I don't think there's any reason to fight against the things that actually grab people's attention. You know, let's talk football. You know, let's get, <laughs> let's get to them through that. Why not? You know, true, true. And and who doesn't want to own part of a football team? Everyone wants to be an owner. You know. Um, hey, if I get uh, box, yeah. <laughs> why not? No, I'm Pop- kidding. <laughs> Public capital, I think it's a great idea. But, Don't uh, I mean, and we have an example too. I mean, aren't the Green Bay Packers owned par- at least partially by right. the city? Yeah, it's a nonprofit. Yep. Yeah. Community yeah. owned. Yeah. Anyway, well, and you used to be a football player yourself too, right, Ron? Didn't you play like uh, collegiate football? I did. I, nice. I, I played high school and college football. Um, what position? In in high school, I played um, running back. And linebacker well, in college, I, say, I played. You're, you're like a linebacker, defensive. And in back. college, you played what? I played defensive back in in college. Okay. Oh wow, wow, nice. Used to be a lot smaller. All right. Now, <laughs> now he's back on offense. Yeah. All right. So, um. All right. So we're at like an hour fifteen. I didn't want to take too much of your time, but I I was hoping we could uh, talk more. I mean, we, it's been ages. I mean, just so much has happened, and you you you've been in the headlines so much, like. At a national level run, I was like, we were talking about you uh, amongst ourselves. Like, man, this guy is going on a journey. Like, this era of crisis, I feel like you have a book to write, you know, <laughs> somewhere. Just the things <laughs> that you have had to go through and experience. And I don't, I mean, I laugh, but I'm not making light of this. It's been pretty serious stuff that you've had to deal with, of course. Um, but, yeah, I mean, really, really... We've we've been following what you're doing. We're big supporters, and uh, you know we think you're a really uh, unique voice out there. And um, you know, hope hope that um, you know we get to do this more often. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, I appreciate you guys. Um, you know, it's, it was interesting because you know, I just to be reflective of the attention that I was getting off from the crisis last year. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen when I decided to speak up against um, the former governor. Um, but what I was clear to do was find an issue that I deeply cared about at that time and was willing to die on that hill at, for that issue. Um, and luckily it worked out worked out better than, than, than Andrew Cuomo. Um, but with the home care stuff that I'm fighting for now, uh, it's an entirely new set of, I think, you know, issues that, um, that have even more powerful people, like one of the biggest healthcare union, um, mega nonprofit groups, progressive establishment groups that are on the wrong side of the issue. So, you know, we'll see what happens. And I'm hoping whatever uh, attention and clout that I was able to garner from last year with the attention with the former governor, I can use it to, to win um, uh, this fight for the home care workers. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Sounds yeah. good. I think you, I, I think it does sound like you won a lot of allies, uh, or or won some new allies at least in Albany. And you weren't the only one that had these feelings, right? You just seemed to be the one that really broke the broke the levy. In oh yeah, no, everyone, everyone, yeah, they yes. were they were very eager to throw them under the bus once. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just took one one person to set it off. So deservedly so. Yeah. Anyway, um, all right, that's our episode for this week. Ron, thank you so much uh, for making the time. I know you're a busy man. Um, but uh, yeah, this is your escape from plan A for this week. Hope you enjoyed it, folks. All right. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.